Good morning, friends, and welcome to worship here at Arapahoe United Methodist Church in Richardson, Texas. My name is Maggie Proshek, and I serve as one of the pastors. We're so glad that you are joining us from wherever you may be. If you have been with us for some time, we would love to connect with you. Or if you're visiting with us for the very first time, we'd love to connect with you and help you find ways to connect more to the life of the church here at Arapahoe. And the best way to do that is to go onto our website and fill out our I'm New connection form that takes just a couple of minutes. You can go to arapahoeumc.org new to find that form. And after that, one of our pastors will be in touch with you and start a conversation with you to see how we can can best connect you to Arapahoe. And also, we have so many incredible events and opportunities coming up in the life of the church, and the best way to know about these things that are coming up is to sign up for our newsletter that comes out weekly on Thursdays. And so you can go to our website, arapahoeumc.org newsletter to sign up to receive that. And so friends, as we are in the season of Lent and through our worship series, Searching for a Miracle, this morning, may we um, hear the ways that God is speaking and calling out to us. And so, friends, may you take a deep breath wherever you are. May you rest in God's presence and God's love and grace. And may you listen for where the Holy Spirit is moving in you. Welcome to worship. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. The Lord hath promised good to me, his word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Friends, this morning as we come to our time of prayer, may we remember and pray for these people in our community, for Jackie and Paul, for Patty, for Becky, 
and for Betsy. And for all of the things that are heavy on your heart, for all the things that you are joyful about, we give thanks to the Lord and we pray to God. And so now will you join me in prayer? O God of dirt and dust, of life and light, of time and truth, of hope and heartache too. Help us to sit in our humanity. O God who builds galaxies and breathes life into dry bones, we thank you for this gift of being wholly human and called holy still. Help us to sit in your wonder. We come to you aware of all the cracked and dry parts of ourselves, and we give thanks that you are not a God who leaves us alone in our sufferings, but you are a God who brings us close and bears witness with us. Sit with us, O God. And now, this day, may we pray with one voice the prayer that you have taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to chapter 3, verses 6. It reads, Jesus went through the wheat fields on the Sabbath. As the disciples made their way, they were pickling the heads of the wheat. The Pharisees said to Jesus, Look, why are they breaking the Sabbath law? He said to them, Haven't you ever read what David did when he was in need, when he and those with him were hungry? During the time when Abathar was high priest, David went to God's house and ate the bread at their presence, which only the priests were allowed to eat. He also gave them bread to those who were with him. Then Jesus said, The Sabbath was created for humans. Humans weren't created for the Sabbath. This is why the human one is Lord, even over the Sabbath. Jesus returned to the synagogue, and a man with a withered hand was there. He wanted, Wanting to bring the charges against Jesus, they were watching Jesus closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. He said to the man with the withered hand, Step up where people can see you. Then he said to them, Is it illegal on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they said nothing. Looking around them with anger, deeply grieved at their unyielding hearts, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. So he did, and his hand was made healthy. At that, the Pharisees got together with the supporters of the Herod to plan how to destroy Jesus. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Amen. If you take anything and place it into human hands for long enough, it's 
going to be weaponized at some point. I know this because I'm a parent, and I've spent the last year, like all of us, uh, sheltering in place, mostly at home, and doing so, like many of you, uh, with small children in my home, a five-year-old daughter named Andy and my one-and-a-half-year-old son named Jude, and I am amazed at the things that they can figure out how to bonk each other on the head with. Anything in human hands held long enough can become a weapon. Now, I want to know what kind of things uh, maybe you used to hit your uh, sibling on the head with growing up. If you've got a story or an item, feel free to share that in the chat. And and while it can certainly elicit a chuckle as you think about your own childhood or your kids or grandkids, um, it also is not very funny uh, as well. I think about any of the inventions that we have experienced as human beings over time, we've figured out ways to weaponize those things as well. More recently, I think about things like nuclear energy, right? Such a great source of energy when, when used to, to be a source of energy and can also create nuclear weapons and mass destruction in that way. Or, or computers are a great source of information and connection and even community like we're experiencing right now. And yet, it can also be a hotbed of bullying and racism and extremism and cyber warfare now. Anything held in human hands long enough can become a weapon. Religion is no different. Religious community is no different. As long as either of these things have existed, uh, they've been weaponized. They were in Jesus' day as well. We've been studying for the last few weeks as part of the season of Lent, the season of preparing for Easter Sunday in the Christian church. We've been in this series of messages called Searching for a Miracle, where we've been looking at some of the miracles of Jesus found in the Gospels um, and considering how they're more than just stories held within those pages. They are meant to be experienced and expressed in our lives today. And Jesus has, has battled things like storms and demons in recent weeks, but this Sunday, Jesus is in opposition to something else, to religion and religious community. In fact, the one that he calls home, because Jesus knows something that I have a feeling many of us know, that is that religion can be weaponized and that the place that we think is our home can also be a place of wounds, And so let's look at the story of the man with the withered hand and backing up a little bit, the story of Jesus and his disciples in a field on that same Sabbath and how this conversation around Sabbath and healing and what's legally allowed is actually much deeper than may first appear. It's a a conversation about the meaning and purpose of faith itself. Let's take a closer look. So in this first part of the story, in chapter, Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field on the Sabbath. This is the day of the week that had been set aside in the Jewish custom as a day of rest. And there were a lot of rules around what you could and could not do during the Sabbath. And Jesus' disciples begin to pluck the heads of wheat off of, as they're walking through the field. And technically, this would have been considered work um, if you were reading it by the letter of the the law. And so the Pharisees, these were people who were, you know, steeped in scriptural knowledge. These guys knew the scriptures front and back. They stopped and said, look, what are you doing? You're breaking the Sabbath. Now, one of the ways that we misread the Gospels at times is we think that Jesus comes into the world and reveals all this crazy new truth and this new interpretation of Scripture when the reality is so often what Jesus is actually doing is simply returning us back to the original intent. 
Jesus knows the scriptures like the Pharisees do, and he knows what they know, and so he's going to use their knowledge in a way kind of against them to say, don't you remember what this was originally meant for? And he shares this story about David going into the temple and eating some of the sacred bread that's there, but then he goes on to say this. He says, the Sabbath was created for humans. Humans were not created for the Sabbath. This is why the human one is Lord even over the Sabbath, Jesus says. Now, what he's referencing there uh, is found in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy is one of the first five books of the Bible. It's the part of the Old Testament that tells the stories and the laws of the Israelites after their exodus journey, their leaving of uh, Egypt and wandering through the wilderness. And so, um, this is establishing who the Israelite people are and their culture and their ways and who God is with them. And in chapter 5, we find the Ten Commandments. Now, even if you haven't read a word of the Bible, I have a feeling you've heard of those, um, maybe because of the Charlton Heston movie, right? Um, um, and so, in verse 12, the Sabbath is instituted by God. And it says this in Deuteronomy 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, and by you, God says, I mean all, you or your son or your daughter or your male or female slave or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the resident alien in your towns, all means all, God says, so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. Remember, God says, that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Jesus is reminding the Israel, or reminding the Pharisees rather, that the Israelites uh, received the Sabbath from God as a gift, a gift of rest and life and mercy and grace after their long and arduous years of serving as slaves under a less kind master. The Sabbath was always meant to be this source of mercy and grace, and yet over time it had been twisted, weaponized even, into this further obligation that people had to meet, these chains, if you will, that they were kept in, rather than a free gift of God meant to remind them of the freedom that they had received, the liberation that they had experienced. Jesus is talking about the Sabbath, but he's talking about faith more broadly and deeply. And he's reminding us and the Pharisees, those good churchy people, that the life of faith, including our sacrifices, like the Sabbath, when we hold ourselves back, when we rein ourselves in, the life of faith, including sacrifice, is ultimately about liberation, not obligation. Now, those words rhyme, so that's a really good line, and, and Aaron loves it when I rhyme, don't you, Aaron, right? Uh, the life of faith, including sacrifice, is about liberation, not obligation. The Sabbath itself was meant to be a reminder of the liberating work that God had done in their lives, and the sacrifices the Israelites would make were to call them back and move them forward towards greater liberation for themselves and others. I think about this Lenten season, and if you're new to Lent, a, a traditional practice in Lent is to give something up, right, to sacrifice something in our lives. And, and I've tried to practice this since I was a kid, and a few years ago, this is a really silly example of what I'm talking about. A few years ago, I, I gave up drinking sodas for Lent. 
uh, because I just was trying to get my sugar intake down. And uh, what I discovered was at that same time in my life, I was having really awful heartburn like terrible, put me on my back, lay me up in bed, could not move, heartburn. And what I had not realized was that maybe the heartburn was being caused by the copious amounts of of high fructose corn syrup that I was consuming. And so when I cut the sodas out, yeah, I was trying to think about Jesus when I wasn't drinking Dr. Pepper, and so I thought about Jesus a lot. I prayed without ceasing that Lent. But what I also discovered is that I stopped having the heartburn that I once did. And so suddenly that sacrifice was a lot easier to make. Again, silly example, but that was a a sacrifice in my life that actually led to a a better living for me. Now, it can also look a lot more serious as well because I've seen the effects of when a, a religion gets weaponized, especially around sacrifice and obligation. I think about my friend John. And John grew up uh, knowing that he was different uh, than most other boys uh, because John knew that he was gay. He grew up in a church that made clear that anybody that was like him, that thought the way that he did, that felt the way that he did, that loved the way that he did, was full of sin and doomed for hell. And John was met with this message week after week, Sunday after Sunday, Sabbath after Sabbath. And so he went to conversion therapy camps. He tried to convince himself and others that he could be healed and made well, but he wasn't. He was gripped and ripped with shame and guilt. He went to missionary school because he loved the church and he loved God and he loved Jesus so much. He was making his family proud until one day he knew that he could no longer live this lie and so he confessed who he was. And he was rejected by the school and by his church. He was cast out by his own family. And he was worried that maybe he had fallen out of the love and grace of God as well. When religion gets weaponized, our sacrifices, our faith can become these obligations that weigh us down, chain us up, and burden us. And thank speed to God that John found other churches and other Christians and other voices and other books and other speakers and other authors and other podcasts that could give him the healing message that, John, you are a beautiful child of God exactly as you are. And who you love and who you were made to be does not need to end up on that altar and sacrificed in the name of obligation. Rather, you can sacrifice your shame and your guilt and the wounds that you were handed by a church that did not truly love you and find liberation through the love of God instead. Jesus comes to confront those wounds and comes to confront those that would wound in the name of God in the name of religion. Jesus is talking about the Sabbath, but he's really talking about more broadly the life of faith itself and how we have this penchant for twisting it into something it was never meant to be, adding it to the laundry list of obligations and sources of shame that surround us in this life. And so as I look at my own faith and what I feel like my faith is leading me to do, what I feel like the pastors in my life are asking me to do, as I feel like my church is is asking me to do, I ask myself this question, do I sense liberation for myself and for others or do I sense obligation? Because I want my faith and my life of faith to be rooted in and pointing towards the liberating work of God. And so Jesus returns to the synagogue and and he returns to confront this woundedness that he can sense, this, this weaponized religion that he knows is at work within his own religious community and home. 
And it says a man with a withered hand was there, and the Pharisees wanted to bring charges against Jesus, and they were watching Jesus closely to see if he would heal, if he had the audacity to heal on the Sabbath. And he said to the man with the withered hand, step up to where people can see you. And then he said to them, is it legal on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Now, Jesus knows that they know the answer to this question. It's not a trick question. They know what the answer is, and it says, but they said nothing, looking around at them with anger, deeply grieved at their unyielding hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And so he did, and his hand was made healthy. And at that, the Pharisees got together with the supporters of Herod to plan how to destroy Jesus. So, let's understand the man with the withered hand and why that would have been important. You know, he's not a special person. He's not named. He has no title. He has no status. We can assume he was a working class man in the community. And a withered hand would have greatly impacted his life because as a working class man, almost anything he could have done for a living would have been done with his hands. So having only one hand to, 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 to use for that kind of work would have meant that he would have been able to earn half of the money and do half of the work and provide in half of the way for his family, for the people that he loved. He would probably be seen as half of a person by that religious community, having a withered hand and the prevailing theology in that time that you would have those kinds of maladies because of the sin in your life. He was likely someone that was a little ostracized. He didn't get invited over to dinner too often because you don't want to be around Sinners like that. I imagine him going to Sabbath, going to temple week after week, his whole life praying and being told by these Pharisees and scholars that if only he prayed a little harder, gave a little more, loved God just a bit deeper, maybe the healing would visit his hand. He was wounded in more than one way, I imagine. We have to acknowledge that unfortunately for many, the life of faith, or more accurately, a relationship with religion, has been a source of wounds or leaves us feeling like second-class citizens. I think about this man with the withered hand. And I see Jesus stepping into his space, into this synagogue, into this broken down, weaponized religion, and it, and it impresses upon me and upon us this Sunday. Jesus confronts religion, including our religion, when it produces wounds rather than well-being. Jesus confronts religion when it produces wounds rather than well-being. His heart is stirred to righteous anger, the same kind of anger that flips over tables. If your faith brings you to a place of deep personal shame or guilt or fear or anxiety, it is time to step away from a relationship with weaponized religion and to step back into a relationship with Jesus. That shame and that guilt, those are gifts from good churchy people. But Jesus always only offers grace and healing and tender care to the wounded and the hurting. But here's the really cool thing about this miracle is it doesn't just stay within these pages. Because as Jesus heals our wounds and Jesus makes us whole, Jesus opens us up to the opportunity for that healing to be magnified and multiplied in the world around us. Notice that after the man is healed, if you look in your Bibles or in your Bible app or you click the, click the, the tab on the, on the page that you're watching this on, there should be a Bible tab on our website. 
in chapter 3, verse 7, this story continues. It says, Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him. Hearing all that he was doing, they came to him in great numbers from Judea and Jerusalem, Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the region around Tyre and Sidon. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowds so that they would not crush him. There were so many people. For he had cured many, so that all who had diseases pressed upon him to touch him. In other versions of the story, in Matthew and Luke, it makes clear what Mark leaves a little ambiguous here. That these crowds that gathered around Jesus, by reaching out and touching and pressing upon him, received this mass healing moment. The man's personal story of healing... The man with the withered hand in the synagogue, his personal story of healing becomes a catalyst for a whole host of healing just a few verses later. The way that Jesus takes one person's healing and turns it into many. You know, one of my favorite theologians is a man named Henry Nouwen. He has this knack for taking really lofty, inaccessible theological ideas. Those books can be so thick and hard to read at times. And, and he takes theology and makes it refreshingly relatable and accessible and, he, and grounded in the lived human experience. And in his book called The Wounded Healer, and I would commend it to you, The Wounded Healer by Henry Nouwen, he says this, Nobody escapes being wounded. We are all wounded people, whether physically, emotionally, mentally or spiritually. The main question is not how can we hide our wounds. Don't we spend a lot of time doing that? The main question is not how can we hide our wounds so we don't have to be embarrassed, but rather how can we put our woundedness in the service to others when our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become a source of healing? We have become wounded healers. I love that question, that alternative that he offers us, because I don't know about you, but I've wasted a lot of time in my life trying to cover up wounds out of embarrassment, out of shame, out of guilt. And instead he says, he points us to this question, this more helpful and healing question, how can we put our woundedness in the service to others? As a people who live in a broken world, who live in broken communities, who live in a world of weaponized religion and wounds that come from other sources as well, how can we put our woundedness in the service to others. This past week, I was meeting with a man named Dale Klosterman. Many of you know Dale. And Dale's wife, Hilda, passed away about a month ago. And Hilda has an incredible life story. Dale and his daughter, Natalie, and I, we, we, we spoke for at length for about an hour. And we planned her memorial service that's coming up on the 27th, and if you'd like to uh, see that, we'll be sure to share information on how you can at the appropriate time. But what we also did was we shared stories, and Dale said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send you a story that Hilda wrote about herself. She wrote her own autobiography. It's about five pages that he sent me that Hilda had written about her own life and times growing up in and escaping eastern Germany. And I want to share some of that with you now. I want to share Hilda's story of being a wounded healer. Hilda was born in Kulungsborn, Germany. I hope I pronounced that halfway correctly. On August 17th, 1941, to her parents, Natalie and Julius Hack. Natalie, her mother, would die shortly after childbirth from pneumonia. Her father, Julius, paid two different families to care for his two daughters, his, his infant daughter, Hilda, and another family to care for her older sister, Regina. 
So Hilda and Regina were separated at that point. Julius, her dad, would end up captured and killed by the Russians as a result of the war. Hilda would never come to know her dad. Her adopted mother was a Red Cross nurse named Carla Roeder. Her father, her adopted father, was a soldier who would end up a meager fisherman selling fish out of the basement in their home. As she got older, she thought about what she might want to do with her life, and and she tried music school, and in her words, she was not talented. (laughs) So then she apprenticed at her uncle's bakery, but then her aunt and uncle ended up fleeing Eastern Europe, or Eastern Germany, rather, after the government tried to force them to give up private ownership of their bakery. And so then she gets a letter, when she's 18 or 19, she gets a letter from her big sister, Regina, who had already fled to the West by this time. And Regina wants to meet Hilda in Berlin, And has an offer for Hilda to go to America. So Hilda goes to Berlin. And she spends a day hanging out with some of her classmates. And and she gets a little intoxicated. Her words, not mine. And she hops onto a train in East Germany. In East Berlin. And it runs through East and West Germany. She gets on this train and she just doesn't get off. She has no plan. No clue what she's going to do when the East German police search the train, which they most certainly will, but then they don't. For no apparent reason, no police ever step into her train compartment. And so suddenly she's in West Germany. And little did she know how, preven- how, uh, how lucky that timing was because several weeks later, just a few weeks later, East Germany would close the border for good and begin building the Berlin Wall. So Hilda eventually makes her way to Cincinnati, Ohio, where she meets Dale. They get married, and then she goes and earns a couple of college degrees and and teaches German for a bit and doesn't really care for it. And then they have two daughters, just like her mom did. She gives birth to two daughters. And once her girls are in kindergarten, she decides to go back to school to become a nurse, like Carla, her adopted mom. And then she works for 28 years, 28 years as a neonatal nurse at Presby Hospital in Dallas, taking the most fragile lives right after birth and caring for them and for their mothers with the wounds, the hands of a wounded healer. You know, I have to imagine that Hilda's story and her wounds from growing up amidst war and poverty found redemption in the care that she offered to the babies and their mothers, in the way that she raised her two girls to live fearless lives, and in the way that she held on to the audacities of hope and joy as one raised amidst poverty and grief. I'm grateful for Hilda's story this Sunday. It reminds me of what Mark reminds us of this morning, that in the hands of Jesus, faith leads to liberation. Wounds lead to healing. And may ours be the hands of the wounded healer. Amen. you lived you 
cared for the suffering, the sick and the poor. You worked with compassion to heal and restore. By the grace of our God, you brought life to the earth as you healed those in need. You saw each person's worth. May we who proclaim you now answer your call to bring hope and healing and health care to all. When young ones and old ones and poor ones were will. The poor and the struggling were loved by God too. Good health wasn't just for the privileged few. By the grace of our God, you brought life to the earth. As you healed those in need, you saw each since worth may we who proclaim you now answer your call to bring hope and healing and health care to all remind us oh god that men And care that extends beyond just our neighbors and loved ones and friends. By the grace of our God, you brought life to the earth. As you healed those in need, you saw each person's worth. May we who proclaim you now answer your call to bring hope and healing and health care to all. Today's invitation is an opportunity to serve and to worship with us. The first is our blood drive. You can make a huge impact on our community by making a simple donation of blood on Sunday, March 28th, from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., you can make a donation to the Carter Blood Care on their bus here in our parking lot at AUMC. Spots are filling up soon, so go to our website today at arapahoumc.org forward slash connect. As we are in Lent and preparing for Easter, we are also preparing for our worship services that morning. On Easter morning, Sunday, April 4th, you will have multiple times to worship with us online and at the North Lawn. At 6.45 a.m. on the North Lawn, there will be a student-led sunrise service, which will include music, prayer, and a message. Then at 8.15 and 9.45, there will be outdoor services. Then at 11 o'clock, 
there will be an online service which will include the organ and a multi-congregational virtual choir. You won't want to miss that. Given the limited space on our lawn and the popularity of the day, we just ask that you RSVP to your preferred worship service so that we can prepare for proper distancing and make it possible for everyone to attend that morning. You can register an RSVP for your service at arapahoumc.com forward slash connect. We hope that you will continue to find ways this week to engage in more spiritual community here at Arapahoe UMC. I want to thank you for your continued generous support of the ministries here at Arapahoe United Methodist Church. This Sunday marks something of a year anniversary of uh, worshiping in this way uh, without folks in the space and, and primarily online, only online rather. Um, and, you know, for those who've been with us since this time a year ago, you know that this worship has, looks differently than it, than it used to. We started this year ago with an iPad and the pews. And um, I'm so grateful to our tech team, to our leadership board, and to you. Uh, as we have built this bridge as we walk across and learned how to worship with excellence online and, and to be able to reach new friends and new AUMC family members through this brand of ministry. We've had folks joining the church and participating in new ways online, and we thank God for that, and I thank you for that because your support makes that possible. For those who are continuing to send an estimate of giving cards, thank you, thank you, thank you. We've now received 115 cards, and um, the average increase right now is about 15% which is great. Now, wherever you are in your financial giving this year, I want you to know that the most important part is that we turn them in as those who call AUMC home. And so you can find that online by going to arapahoumc.org slash generosity. Um, thank you to the 23 people who have turned them in for the very first time. I'm so glad that you're a part of the AUMC family and you're participating in the spiritual practice. And if you'd like to give to Arapaho this Sunday, you can do so in three easy ways. You can go to arapahoumc.org slash donate to give online where you can find a way to give via credit card or through ACH, recurring giving. You can also give by texting the word give to the number that you see on your screen. And lastly, you can always send a check to 1400 West Arapaho Road, Richardson, Texas, 75080. Thank you for allowing us to, to be a ministry that even through this online form can help to heal the wounds and to lead others to be wounded healers in our communities, in our neighborhoods, and in our world. And now I offer you this parting word of peace. May we go from God's church into God's world, knowing that everything left in human hands long enough can become a weapon, but may ours be the hands of the wounded healer. May faith lead to liberation. May wounds lead to healing. May we lead others to wounded healer to be wounded healers themselves. Go in peace. Amen.